Welcome to the official ABA Law Student Podcast, where we talk about issues that affect law students and recent grads. From finals and graduation to the bar exam and finding a job, this show is your trusted resource for the next big step. You're listening to the Legal Talk Network. Hello, and welcome to another edition of the ABA Law Student Podcast. My name is Christopher Butler, and I'm glad to be with you here today. We are going to have a wonderful podcast. Happy Black History Month to everyone. Today, I have two wonderful guests, Jerome Crawford and Tiffany Buckley Norwood. My first guest is Jerome Crawford. Jerome is Associate General Counsel of Horizon Global Corporation, a publicly traded company and world leader in custom towing, trailering, and cargo management products. In this corporate counsel position, he handles an array of issues spanning areas such as compliance, M&A, intellectual property, product liability, employment, and corporate law. As part of his service to the bar, Jerome serves as president of the Wolverine Bar Association and Foundation, an executive council member of both State Bar of Michigan Young Lawyers and ACES sections. On a national level, he also serves as the member of the National Conferences Team and Men of Color Task Force of the Young Lawyers Division of the American Bar Association. And besides being an attorney by day, he is also a professional actor, model, and comedian. Thank you for joining us, Jerome. Thanks for having me, Chris. My next guest, Tiffany Buckley Norwood, is a principal with Jackson Lewis PC, a national labor and employment law firm. She has provided workplace law and diversity counseling to employers for the past 13 years and is a frequent author and presenter with over 30 presentations and over 20 published works. As a part of her service to the bar and her community, Tiffany serves as the president of the D'Augustus Straker Bar Association, a national bar association affiliate, a member of the ABA Labor and Employment Section, the legislative chair for Jack and Jill of America Ypsilanti chapter, and a pro bono attorney for criminal record expungement hearings. She was recognized as an up-and-coming lawyer by Michigan Lawyers Weekly in 2015 and as a best lawyer in America in 2019. Thank you for joining us, Tiffany. Thank you for having me. I am glad you guys are here. You gave me wonderful bios to read about you guys. Uh, can you tell our listeners a little bit more about yourselves and the work that you do? Chris, I think you covered it fairly comprehensively in my bio, but uh, just a little bit about my practice, I focus on equal employment opportunity and affirmative action in particular. Those are kind of two sides of the same coin. On the one hand, focusing on making sure people have the opportunities in the workplace, but also taking that proactive approach to diversity and inclusion. Uh, So our topics today, I think, are are going to fold right into what I do on a day-to-day basis, both in my personal and my work life. And just to expound a little bit, Chris, on on what you laid out, as Tiffany noted, I think the bio does a, a great job given my background. One nugget not included is that, um, similar to Tiffany, I was also in a private practice role before I came into this in-house counsel position at a law firm, Dickinson Wright. Um, so I've got this sort of both sides of the coin perspective of what it means to be in private practice, what it means to be an attorney inside a company. Um, and, uh, you know, in my role, I'm able to also have a global impact, which I think is pretty cool. Um, allows us to see how the issues we deal with on a day-to-day basis here, which are so you know prevalent for us, how they differ when we're you know we're talking about what's going on in maybe Romania or Germany or Brazil. So um, that perspective uh, is really eye-opening. Thank you both. So both of you are presidents of different bar associations. Jerome, you're the president of the Wolverine Bar Association, and Tiffany, you're the uh, president of the Straker Bar Association. So what are the purposes of your organization, and what do they do in their 
um, work? The D-Augustus Stricker Bar Association, as a matter of background, it's named after David Augustus Stricker, who was the first African-American to appear before the Michigan Supreme Court. Our mission is to increase minority representation in the legal profession, support and encourage legal practice opportunities for minorities, and facilitate equal justice for all citizens. As I like to put it, we have three prongs, our commitment to the law students, commitment to the community, and commitment to our membership. Uh, On the Wolverine Bar Association front, just sort of quick background for you, Chris. Um, The the WBA was established uh, actually in 1919. Our roots trace back to what is called the Harlan Law Club. Uh, This is a group founded by several attorneys in the Detroit area who were excluded by local bar associations, namely uh, Black attorneys. Uh, Our name was selected after Justice uh, John Harlan, Supreme Court Justice. He was one of the dissenters um, in the uh, opinion of the Plessy v. Ferguson case. Um, and Wolverine Bar Association, the reason it comes is because in Michigan, we're known as the Wolverine State. Uh, in the 30s, we changed our name from Harlan Law Club over to, over to WBA. Um, and, you know, the goal of, of this organization have not changed to be to promote the efforts of law students, uh, issues of underrepresentation in our profession, as well as attorneys, and as Tiffany said, the community at large. Um, we do that through a variety of programming and things of that nature. Uh, given a, as no secret, 1919 was our roots tracing back to the founding date. We are celebrating the 100th year of our organization as well. Well, the legal profession has been um, slowly uh, trying to improve its diversity and welcoming more people of color into it. And that's both of what your organization's goals are. So how are ways that the legal profession can become more welcoming or encouraging to people of color? Chris, we've talked about this for before I entered the legal profession, but at least for the 13 years that I've been in the legal profession, we've talked frequently about you know making it more welcoming, more encouraging. But a lot of times that conversation is circled around just diversity, so meaning the numbers. You know, how many attorneys of color are there in X law firm or in X uh, law school? And a lot of times inclusion is excluded from that conversation we have to make sure that we are including that. So when I say inclusion, I'm talking about access, access to information, access to opportunities, um, making sure that there is, isn't the segregation that sometimes happens um, just as a, a natural course of individuals grouping together, making sure that we're fostering those conversations so everyone has access to the same information and also making sure attorneys are equipped with non-legal aspects of the practice of law that are frequently shared, particularly amongst white attorneys or attorneys that have that legacy of having a parent or uncle or aunt who previously practiced of law. So, so those attorneys tend to know about, you know, business development, which is crucial if you're going to succeed in the practice of law or networking. Um, so those non-legal aspects are important for making sure that we are inclusive and making sure that everyone succeeds and everyone has access to the same opportunities. You know, to dovetail on a point you just made, Tiffany, which is really salient for me, uh, that is lack of representation. So the mere fact that, you know, folks in communities of color, you know, namely African American, you're not going to, in large part, have that uncle that, you know, practices at such such firm, the grandfather that was a partner in the firm, the mom or the dad, right, that 
that went to law school and can give you perspective. With lack of perspective, it's hard to, to push against this representation issue. And how the legal profession can become more welcoming or encouraging to people of color, you know, I think it starts, number one, with an awareness issue, right? An awareness issue that the profession, the legal profession, is not representative of the communities at large, right? Even, even wherever the disparities may be, say, in the United States of America, our profession is not representative of that. Um, it's something that was actually reflected. I think it was in uh, a recent case that Jay-Z, you know, had a trademark you know, issue. And the concern was that in the whole American Arbitration Association, the AAA, there was not a single black attorney listed under the sort of complex litigation, complex issues matters. So um, he was able to win actually a challenge to say, there's no way I can get sort of a fair um, understanding, fair representation. Uh, without an individual that would understand culturally sort of where we're coming from with respect to this particular issue. So I think for people becoming more welcoming, we have to have an awareness that, you know, this, the norm that we've come to expect is not representative of our communities. And then number two is pipeline. We have to actually create opportunities, um, as Tiffany just noted as well, for, you know, students of color starting at you know, middle school, high school, to even get interested in the law and to realize that the law, in fact, is a possibility for you. Having done things like mock trial programs with middle school, high school students, you know, one of the coolest things is it's really here like, wow, I could actually do that. And it's not just law and order because many of them, their touch points with law of the justice system, unfortunately, oftentimes are negative, not positive. And Jerome, something that you said just sparked a thought with me. So I didn't mention this previously, but prior to joining Jackson Lewis, I was with another law firm and I was on a number of different committees, including the diversity committee, the the new lawyer recruitment committee for summer associates. One of the things that I was very vocal about while I was part of that law firm is the fact that attorneys of color shouldn't just be partnered with other attorneys of color. Um, while it's important for us to have that representation, to have those mentors that look like us. So, you know, when those difficult conversations, those difficult situations come up, you have somebody to say, hey, have you ever encountered this? How do I deal with it? It's also important to have other individuals that don't look like you that you can talk to as well because they have a different viewpoint. They have a different perspective. You know, that's one of the benefits we always talk about, at least in workplace law about diversity, is that everybody comes from their own perspective, their own viewpoint. So we're able to come up with more creative ideas. Well, when you have a mentor that doesn't look like you, that you can bounce ideas off of, their responses are not going to be the same necessarily as another attorney of color. I'll say just speaking about myself, you know, I have mentors and I have sponsors that come in every color and gender. Um, some of my best mentors have been white men because their perspective was different from the perspective that I might get from a black woman, for example, um, when they're talking about how to network and golf, which um, I, I will say I'm still not a fan of, but um, <laughs> having those mentors of, you know, various, you know, white mentors, having mentors that are of color and also having sponsors as well becomes very important. So in the legal profession, we need to make sure that when we're thinking about our mentorship programs and our diversity programs, we're also pairing people, not just with people that look like that. Jerome, when we were at the mid-year meeting and we were at the good guy session, you, uh, one of the questions that was asked was about how companies and sometimes big law firms will put a person of color as a head of their diversity committee and just leave them to that. So what is a way that um, law firms and corporations can 
make an honest effort towards diversity and inclusion without just plugging the people of color they have into that position? No, thanks. Thanks, Chris. That's a, an awesome segue. And what I remember the good guy session, which uh, for, for context, you know, that group was formed with the understanding that male leaders, new generation of male leaders have to be instrumental in helping to address the issues of diversity, right? Not to say that, hey, you guys, hey, men or even white men, you go figure it out. The issues involving, you know, underrepresentation of women in the workforce of uh, people of color. But you have to be an instrumental, you know, force in that. Ironically, we have like an all male panel. So, you know, <laughs> that, that, that can be perceived a number of ways that we were uh, could, could have been seen as mansplaining, you know. But no, but jokes aside, in all seriousness, I think you raised an excellent point, Chris, which is how do you make an honest effort? The key word is honesty. You know, one thing that Tiffany was just touching on a moment about having different sponsors, allies, champions that don't look like you is sort of diversity of thought and a respect of sort of diversity of culture. You know, you have different cultural backgrounds. I think that's how you get to a point of retention. And I love that you use the word retained and not recruit, because in fact, most firms are focused on recruitment. The same way that you recruit, hey, we got this great black partner. Hey, black partner, you're going to be the head of our diversity committee. Why? Because you're a black partner. <laughs> right? It just makes sense. Um, you got to be that guy. And, and not understanding, okay, how do, we don't want to get people in the door, but you want to keep them here. Because when you have an underrepresentation you know, issue, naturally, and Tiffany will attest to this, we see a lot of times where firm, firms sort of poaching from one firm to the next because you just have these sort of you have minority candidates and, and great qualified individuals. They're just moving from one place to another, but we're not actually moving the needle forward by having more representation. To get to the point of, of retention, from my take, there has to be you know, a, a true inclusive, inclusive background. Understanding that whatever the status quo, whatever the norm is, may not be representative of the whole. It has to be more gaining of feedback, getting information from all your attorneys, particularly those that may not have strong representation of you know, what matters to them with respect to the firm. What cultural things and activities does the firm or that company engage in um, and having a diverse workforce? And then I think it's when they are recruiting, recruiting with a true meritocracy outlook. Um, on that Good Guys panel, we actually had um, a gentleman who, you know, Brad Walter was high in Caesars. Um, and what he talked about was how his workforce, his entire team was incredibly diverse, but it took very intentional efforts. There has to be a level of intentionality. I'm not just saying from a quota standpoint, I've got to hire 10 people. Okay, two have to be, you know, um, black, you know, four have to be women. It, that, it can't be that rigid, but it does have to be this outlook of meritocracy. And I do believe that when you're intentionally trying to help create a diverse environment, true, honest diversity, genuine diversity breeds more diversity, right? Because it becomes something that is now natural and inherent. And you wonder sometimes, how did that company, how did they get it right? Because they made it intentional. I think another thing that's important, um, law firms need to realize, and as somebody who hasn't been in-house counsel before, Jerome could speak to this better than I, but at least from the law firm perspective, some law firms haven't realized that we aren't cut from the same mold. Not everyone comes from the same background. Not everybody has the same experiences. And, and that plays out in a number of different ways. So, for example, when I was on the recruitment committee, a lot of times I would look at someone's GPA and realize, you know, that first semester just did not go well. To be candidly, it did not go well. But when you talk to them, they realize what went wrong, how they can improve in the future. And nine times out of 10, the issue was that they were working during that first year of law school because they were trying to still maintain some income while also adjusting to learning the law itself. 
you know, the way that our structure is that the whole system, and, and I won't get on my soapbox all the way, but the way that the system is set up, you know, you don't have that opportunity in most instances to start that learning curve without severe ramifications. If you're looking at the traditional large law firm path, right? You have to have the great grade your first semester in order to interview and get a summer associate position so that you can be offered a job to come back. Um, and so one of the things that I'm, I've always been a big proponent of is looking beyond that GPA and talking to the person about what were you doing during your first year? What have you learned? So another area in which that non-traditional path, that not knowing about that adjustment period comes into play is with writing programs. And this, again, is where access and access to opportunities, access to information becomes so important. You know, when I, I was um, lucky in that I had mentors that told me, you know, you know, after you get you through your first year classes for your second year, make sure that you get an advanced writing course and an advanced research course. Not everybody had that opportunity. A lot of people thought they needed to take the classes that would help them for the bar. Instead, my mentor said, you know what? Those classes aren't going to help you long-term. Make sure you take clinics. Make sure you take advanced legal writing, advanced legal research, because that's what's going to help you get a job and do well in your job. So keeping those things in mind, law firms, particularly when people are coming back for the summer or when they're a first year, while some law firms have writing programs or they have research programs or they have programs on business development, um, or for example, my firm has a whole business development academy, not every law firm does. And those are things that help all of us get to the same level. It also helps us to help the firm as well. So thinking about the fact that not everybody's coming from that same cookie cutter mode, not everybody's going to have those same opportunities is important for inclusion and retention. Yeah. So I know with at least law students um, looking in, uh, you know, after that first year, I know working with the one else this year for the um, applications for, you know, thinking about getting a summer associate position. A lot of them are, you know, sort of this year, I'll be like, oh, I didn't get the grades I wanted or I didn't get the highest grade. So I'm not going to get a, you know, a summer associate position. So I'm not going to get a job next year. And so I think that's a part of our culture that sort of needs to be addressed that, you know, your grades are one aspect of it, but there are other Mm -hmm. things that you can do to change uh, how your outlook on your future is. And a lot of that is getting good mentors. Yeah. Right. And I think that's one way that your organizations have been very helpful, at least to me, is being able to meet other attorneys of color and judges of color and being able to talk to them about, okay, what classes should I be taking? What opportunities should I be seeking out? And I think that's very helpful to law students of color. But I think law students of color can also be mentors to high school students and middle school students, because for a lot of people, that draw to be in the legal profession starts younger than college even. So what can law students of color do better to help sort of create a pipeline for other um, young people of color to get into the legal profession and to help guide them along the way? Both you, Jerome, and 
you, Chris, have already touched on a lot of what I was going to say. So, you know, it's important to start reaching back. If you're not already reaching back, start reaching back to elementary and middle high school levels. You know, this is something particularly with Straker and I know Wolverine Barr, we're focused on right now. Um, so law students of color can partner with local bar associations, community organizations, and think outside of the box. It doesn't just have to be a bar association. Um, I'll give you an example for me, I used um, one of the ABA's lesson plans recently to informally pilot a program through my Jack and Jill chapter uh, for three-year-old through nine-year-olds, actually, on how everyone in a courtroom has the a role in ensuring due process in the criminal justice system. So we had the president of the Association of Black Judges come in and he talked about a judge's role. And then we had, again, these were three through nine-year-olds. We had each of them play a role. So we had one um, child who was a prosecutor, one who was a defense attorney, one who was the defendant, one who was the judge, one who was a court reporter, and then everyone else was a jury. And they had to get together and talk about the scenario that I gave them. It was a, a child that threw a ball through a window or was accused of throwing a ball through a window. And they had to get together and determine what they wanted to say to the jury um, and present their arguments. And then the jury had to determine whether the defendant was guilty or not guilty. And they loved it. They were engaged in that program and it gave them exposure outside of what we usually hear about the criminal justice system and how, you know, the criminal justice system does a disservice to people of color, it shows how they can be part of making sure that there's due process and fairness in that criminal justice system. You know, it's, that's right on point. You know, as Tiffany said, it gets back to the concept of a pipeline. You don't know what you don't know. And when you can, don't have people that you can look up to, maybe even look like you come from a community that are doing a certain thing, you know, how can you sort of envision yourself in that role? The same way that, you know, President Obama created validity and, and created oppor- you know, opportunity because now you say it's confirmation. If I look like him, I really can do that. Not just people saying, yeah, you can be president one day. So taking that same parallel, I mean, this goes to what law students of color can do to increase, you know, sort of people applying and getting into their law schools in the pipeline. I think it comes down to very simple concepts, servant leadership, right? Which is the lift as you climb, you know, model. So as you're now in law school, each, each you have come from a certain community, Remember that community. Remember those that you are there now, you know, in front of and um, making sure that you're reaching back and lifting forward. This is our dean of our law school, Dean Connell also used to always say, you know, he had this image of is a, a black man climbing, climbing over a fence and simultaneously reaching down and bringing up the other with him. Uh, something that Judge Damon J. Keith talks about all the time. Right. That, you know, we are you know walking through doors we didn't open and we're walking on floors we did not, you know, scrub. So, so wherever you go, you open doors and you scrub floors, right? To paraphrase his, his famous quote. So I think it's remembering that if you're coming from those certain communities, remember those communities and find pipelines. So a quick example of that would be, and this is actually, it is Tiffany said, it doesn't have to happen in bar association work. That's just one model. You can go back to your community and just when you go tell your family, your friends, but this came through actually a young lawyers uh, section event through State Bar of Michigan. And it's the mock trial we've done. We call it this diversity mock trial. We've done it for about five years now. Every year, right, what we do is we bring in these, we bring in these, some of the middle school or high school students, and they get to do an intensive sort of mock trial workshop, get to go through the ability of what it means to be a prosecutor, defense attorney, all that sort of jazz. But the most important point we've noticed is at the end of it, we have a Q&A with law students, attorneys, and judges, and particularly those that often look like the students, right, that are coming from, you know, the inner city um, and whatnot and have never even met a lawyer, 
right? The only lawyers they know are on law and order. <laughs> and they're going, so, you know, when, when, you're on, when you're in front of the jury, right, and they find out just this perspective they gain really is eye-opening for them. And that's, those touch points, I think, are really what help encourage folks, encourage young people to go, guess what? You can do this too. And you, can, you too can get in law school. Um, and that's how we kind of combat this representation issue, which, you know, is persistent. And I know that we've been having uh, most of our discussions surrounding law students of color, but there are white law students that want to be effective allies, but they don't really know what to do. And just as there's a wide range of law students of color in their backgrounds, there are uh, white law students who have been around people of color their whole lives. They are aware of the issues. They just want to learn how to help. And people that are sort of oblivious because they haven't been in that world and then some people that just outright ignore it. But how can uh, white law students and even like white legal professionals be effective allies to their colleagues of color and helping them with diversity and inclusion? I talk a lot about having courageous conversations. I think that's one of the first steps that if you're from the majority, you know, white law student, uh, same goes even like the white partner in the firm, right? Or the GC, you know, to gain understanding and perspective, it starts with having a conversation and a conversation where if you're that student majority and you say, how can I help? Because I get that this is an issue. What can I do? Let that be almost all that is said. Basically, it has to be a listening exercise, a learning exercise to hear from the experience. I don't think there's necessarily just sort of this, this one bright line. This is what white law students should do, right, to be effective allies. I think it starts with a seek for information and true, genuine understanding. Um, to hear from their, you know, fellow peers, right? Because the fellow peers at maybe UDM law school might have something different to say than those at Cooley or MSU or U of M about how they think their their peers could be effective allies. Because it might be effective allies just in the sense of here in this law school and the issues we're facing, or maybe in our communities at large, or as we enter the profession together. So I think it's, it has to be a seek to gain understanding. And once there is understanding that is gained, no matter what those methods are that are outlined when they say, okay, I see how I can help, um, there has to be continued collaboration. You know, I mentioned earlier about the concept of sort of this good guys model. I don't think it's ever up to just the majority to sort of, hey, figure out the issues of the minorities, nor is it just up to the minorities, hey, we're going to we'll let you, we'll give you a seat at the table now. You figure it all out. It has to be a collaborative experience. It has to be an initiative that sides are working on together um, in unison. And so kind of dovetailing or, or springboarding off what Jerome said, I think that how can I help is a powerful phrase. Um, if you mm, have yeah. nothing else that you can take away from this conversation, <laughs> ask that question, how can I help? Uh, also, be reflective. If you are in a room for a program that is beneficial and you do not see any law students of color in that room, you know of some, you might want to approach them and say, hey, did you hear about this program? Would you like my notes? Again, that access to information and to opportunities is so important. It can be isolating, especially with where the numbers currently are for law students or for law schools in terms of diversity. It can be isolating at times. Um, so, being that person to advocate, to mentor, you know, mentor first-year law students and say, hey, you know, I noticed you just got here. Let me give you some advice. But more importantly, how can I help you? What advice do you need from me? When it comes to legal professionals, we haven't really touched much on in-house counsel, so I'm, I'm going to take a moment and, and touch there. Uh, one of the most beneficial things that I've seen in terms of the partnership between 
in-house counsel and the law firms that service them, in-house counsel have a very powerful role in dictating what law firms do in terms of diversity and inclusion. Some in-house counsel take the step of asking, let me see your numbers in terms of how many attorneys of color or diverse attorneys do you have within your law firm? What I find even more beneficial, and I have some clients that do this now, are the the companies and the organizations that take it a step further and say, I don't want to just see your numbers, but from an inclusion perspective, I want to know not only how many you have, but what do the billable hours look like? I have some clients that have, you know, three page surveys where they ask information on the average number of hours for attorneys of color versus white attorneys um, for the percentage of partners of color versus percentage of partners organization-wide. So they want the actual statistics to show, yes, this law firm is doing what they say they are going to do or that they want to do in terms of diversity and inclusion. They also ask about the diversity initiatives, the inclusion initiatives that we have in place. Like, do you have any employee resource groups or attorney resource groups to assist your attorneys of color or your, um, we haven't talked about women or about LGBT, but looking at all of those aspects of diversity and seeing what initiatives the law firms have in place, because it also makes the law firms as businesses more reflective themselves that they're not already doing what they're supposed to. And they have to show those numbers that are, that might be an embarrassment to them. They will make sure that it's never an embarrassment again. Right. So asking those deeper questions that go beyond just how many attorneys do you have? And if I can expound on a point, you know, Tiffany, you're spot on, you know, as being in-house counsel now, that, uh, and this is actually a sentiment that was shared by Donald Profit. Don Profit is in a rare position by being a black name partner of a large majority white law firm of Constantine, Brooks, Smith & Profit. And one thing he talked about, and actually was at the Straker Council, the Corporate Council Breakfast last year, a kind of sentiment he shared, in that the work that in-house counsel had to give out to attorneys that are in private practice, the firms they are going to work on their files, that is actual currency, right? And you giving that work to somebody else is like, it's a sense of, it's a true power you have to actually change and adjust the marketplace in how you give it out. Not just saying we give it to a firm that's got large representation of, say, attorneys of color, right? And great diversity initiatives and all that. But as Tiffany said, it's in who's working on the files? And even take it a step further, who's getting the credit? as a billing attorney on that file, right? So you might say, you have certain companies that are, they'll really, as a client, which is what I am, when I, when I hire outside counsel, I'm a client, I can really dictate what I want the firms to do. If they really want the business and they're serious, so to speak, about the diversity efforts and issues that they, they want to bring forward, I can say, hey, I want to make sure that, you know, 30% or 40% of this file, you know, the billing credit goes to attorneys of color. You guys figure out internally what that looks like, you know, as far as who you think is, is, is most suitable, you know, who's sort of earned that, right? But I want to make sure at least 40% of my files go into, go into attorney color as far as them getting the billable credit for this work, because that is going to what makes sort of that life-changing, you know, opportunity for that attorney, and then they can take back the community, you become more than just sort of the file churner, work on the file, and you get some ability to have credit and responsibility for it. So that is a great sentiment aspect, I think, but to just take it back to your question about white law students. Well, these white law students are going to become attorneys at some point, right? They're going to become, where are they going to? In-house context, even in firms, 
understand the concept of someone getting true credit. Because even in law firms, this works the same way, which Tiffany will definitely attest to. Um, and I'll have a perspective of having been in a firm is, you know, who's getting the credit for the file? It's different for saying, let someone work my file, right? This is my client. I'll give you a few hours. I'll give you some assignments. But I want to give you a sense of ownership, right, in this matter. Um, that's really what helps move the needle forward. So, Jerome, I just bounced one point off of you. So Mm -hmm. it's also important to look at how that credit is distributed. So different Mm -hmm. law firms have different models for how they attribute credit. Um, I love, and hopefully they're not mad at me for saying this, but I love the Jackson Lewis model. (laughs) We have a very unique model in the way that we handle credit. Um, We don't think about it as a pie. We're different people get different percentages of the pie. Um, When Mm. we're looking at origination credit, if you are part of bringing in that business, you get origination credit for that business. We have client management partners that, you know, are responsible for um, maintaining and handling any issues with the client. But when it comes to origination credit, it's not a pie, as they like to say. It's not a pie. We are encouraging everyone to be part of the process. We are encouraging that collaboration. So that's an important question to ask. How is credit attributed to the attorneys um, so that you're making sure that it's attributed in the right way? I couldn't agree more, Tiffany. I mean, I think it's, you know, you have to be innovative. The model is what it has been historically in firms, you know, whether you're talking about for the split among attorneys of color, just in general, this is an associate versus partner issue, right? That's lived for decades. I think getting creative with how we attribute that credit, how you dole it out, you know, has to be done. We've got to get more innovative. I, I love the model way you described it. Like what's an origination sort of attorney, right? And the credit for that versus even the client management side, because you oftentimes you have someone that they're the relationship partner, so to speak, the rainmaker, we've all heard this term, right? Where they go out, they bring in the business and then they never work on the file, right? Now, that being said, there should be some level of credit attributed for them bringing the business, but for those that are say, working on the file, there has to be some level of credit too, right? And, and how we do that, you know, how we attribute that goes a long way, particularly when we can take that to underrepresented populations within firms and companies. Wow. Y'all, I just had to sit there and listen and try to gather all that <laughs> what, all that information. Uh, <laughs> this has been a goldmine of a podcast. It's something for everybody. I want to thank you both again for joining me. I really appreciate you taking time out of your busy days to be on this podcast. It was a pleasure. No, Chris, thank you so much for having us. Um, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention it then for those that are listening in the Michigan area. Um, and, and Tiffany's aware as well as we collaborate um, on this event is the Wolverine Bar Barristers Ball will be coming up on April 6, 2019. And again, we're celebrating our 100th year. You can just go to wolverinebar.org for more information. So. Uh, whether you're local in Michigan or not, love to have you. Uh, should be a great celebration. So I want to extend that invitation to all listeners. And I am a big proponent of that event. So I'm not going to mention any Straker Bar Association events because I want everybody to attend that um, first. I think that's the next event that we both have um, mm-hmm. coming up. So, But I will say that you should go to strakerlaw.org to see events that we have after Barrister's Ball. All right. And listeners, I definitely encourage that, whether you're in the Michigan area or outside of it, to definitely look into these organizations and similar organizations in your states. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of the Law Student Podcast. We would like to invite you to subscribe to the ABA Law Student Podcast on iTunes. Reach us on Facebook at ABA for Law Students and follow us and all of our student leaders at hashtag ABA for Law Students. I would again like to thank my guests, Jerome Crawford and Tiffany Buckley Norwood for joining us. 
And before I go, I would like to leave us all with a quote by the late Justice Thurgood Marshall. None of us got where we are solely by pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps. We got here because somebody, a parent, a teacher, an Ivy League crony, or a few nuns bent down and helped us pick up our boots. My name is Christopher Butler. I've been your host for this podcast. Thank you for listening and have a wonderful day. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Subscribe via iTunes and RSS. Find us on Twitter and Facebook or download our free Legal Talk Network app in Google Play and iTunes. Remember, U.S. law students at ABA-accredited schools can join the ABA for free. Join now at AmericanBar.org forward slash law student. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.